And we are about to start off podcast lecture number three. So as that introduction music fades out and I fade in, I am going to get started with a very short review of some of the concepts that we have already covered in the previous podcast lectures. So the first concept, you've heard this one before, the unconscious is a part of you that has a mind and desires of its own and, 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 and you don't know what it is that your unconscious mind thinks. You do not know what it is that your unconscious desires are. That is what makes them unconscious. If you did know what they were, then they would be conscious and not unconscious. All right, so that's the first point. Second point is that uh, along with desires, there's other things that are in our unconscious. They might be memories. They might be associations. They could be a a bunch of different things that have happened to us. Now, one of the things that tends to result in something being taken out of your unconscious and being placed into your unconscious is if that something, whatever it is, if it's a desire or a memory or something, if that something is traumatic. This is a really important thing to understand. Trauma is a huge, very important word within mental health now, and it has been for a very long time. Uh, The psychoanalytic understanding of trauma is that every single one of us, you, me, and everybody we know, has all had some form of trauma in our lives. Now, some of us have had like way worse and way more trauma than others, right? Uh, While we all have trauma, not everybody's trauma is equal, but we do all have trauma. And when we experience something traumatic, what happens is this weird process, and it doesn't happen in a way that we are aware of. It is an unconscious process. It is a process called repression. Repression is where the traumatic thing, whatever it is, is kind of taken and put into this place, this other place called the unconscious. When it's put there, it still exists. It's not gone, right? It didn't get destroyed. It didn't get kind of taken out of you. It's still in you. It's just in this place that you don't have access to. That's the unconscious. The next point I want to make is that repression is something that always starts out as a solution to a problem, the the problem of trauma. When something is traumatic, it's hard to deal with. Dealing with it is something that creates stress and anxiety and pain. And to keep us safe from that stress, that anxiety, and that pain the mind, the conscious mind, kind of does this thing and and uses this process where it takes the traumatic whatever and puts it someplace where it won't bother us. Where And it, when it's there, when, when the traumatic thing is in the unconscious, it's not actively causing us pain or anxiety or stress, those sorts of things, right? So that's what, what repression is. And again, repression always starts out as a solution to a problem. But, and here's the next point, even though it starts out, As a solution to a problem, repression tends to, like the vast majority of the time, also become a problem because 
the things, the traumatic things that we have repressed, they're not gone. They do continue to exist. They just exist in this weird form. In the prior podcast lecture, I made a bit of an analogy. I tried to do a metaphor where I said that repressed things are still in our lives kind of the way that ghosts might be in your lives. A ghost is something, you know, it doesn't have like um, a materiality to it. A ghost can't touch you, um, but it can pass through you, right? And when a ghost passes through you, it gives you the heebie-jeebies. It makes you feel weird things that you probably don't like feeling. Repressed content, at least my argument is, is that repressed content is kind of like a ghost. It's kind of like this thing that has a presence in our life. It can't directly affect us, but it can indirectly affect us. It can haunt us, right? That's, that was the claim that I made here. And here's the last bit of the review. Until somebody is able to find, create, discover a way of confronting, looking at, listening to, experiencing, whatever it is that is repressed, that repressed stuff will continue to mess with them. It will continue to haunt them in some way. And this is where I'm going to start talking to all of you who I assume all of you want to be, you know, social workers or mental health workers in some way, shape or form. This is where you all come in. When you work with people, one of the ways that you could think about the work that you're doing is to think of it as trying to engage with somebody, trying to listen to them talk, watch them as they talk, see kind of what their body language is saying as they talk, really paying attention to them. And when you pay attention to them, what you're trying to do is you're trying to discern or tune into whatever unconscious stuff might be kind of present in the way that they're speaking when they're with you. Uh, in a way, you might think of yourself sort of as like a, a ghost buster, an exorcist, something like that. You'll listen to people talk. As they talk, you'll notice things that they don't. You'll draw attention to some of the things that you notice that they don't. And if you, you learn how to do this process in a psychoanalytic or psychodynamic way, what you'll be doing is you will be trying to help the person, whoever they are, whoever your patient or client, if you want to use that word, whoever they are, you're going to be helping them to stop running from their ghosts, to stop hiding from their ghosts, to stop trying to avoid their ghosts. And what you're going to do is you're going to try to work with them to create an experience that allows for them to actually kind of you know, stop running down the hallway away from the ghost and to turn around, see the ghost, let the ghost come to them. They'll probably, they won't like this. Most people don't like doing this kind of stuff. Psychotherapy or psychoanalysis can be a very difficult experience for people. But you know, it, it, if, it, if it's going to work, it's kind of got to be difficult. So anyways, they, you let the ghost come to them and you help them come to be able to listen to, to experience whatever it is that the ghost is trying to tell them. Because if you can succeed in that endeavor, if you're good at helping the patient or the client not run from their ghosts, but face their ghosts, not ignore their ghosts, but listen to their ghosts, if you're able to do that, what happens is the ghost goes, okay, I've been heard. The traumatic thing that has never been dealt with, has never been worked through, has never been metabolized, becomes worked through, becomes metabolized, becomes something 
that the person who experienced it develops a better understanding of, and in developing that better understanding of it, they are able to, in a way, kind of like cope with it or deal with it. Um, and when that happens, they can let it go and it can let them go. And that means that all of the energy that they were putting into repressing the traumatic content, all of the energy that they were putting into running away from their ghosts, that energy is now freed up and can be redirected towards other things that are probably a lot more enjoyable for them. Now that we're back from that transition music, what I'm going to do is read some text. It comes from chapter two of the book Inside Out and Outside In, the fourth edition of the book. Uh, this comes from page number 18. We said in our introduction that we live in a world in which mental health practices are being evaluated almost exclusively through the lens of quantifiable goals, i.e. the reduction of measurable symptoms, but not necessarily the improvement of the quality of a person's life. It is an era in which empirical validation trumps a more philosophical, imaginative, or interpretive way of understanding human behavior. Social work education often devalues psychoanalytic theory, either caricaturing them as endless navel-gazing or favoring theories and practices that are manualized and measurable. Why have so many schools abandoned psychoanalytic theories and practices? Perhaps one reason is that we do not like to view people as conflicted with themselves, nor are we comfortable admitting that our clients' inner worlds, let alone our own, may be full of hate, sexuality, desire, rage, envy, aggression, or other passions of which we are largely unaware. We may not welcome the idea that early trauma shapes our subsequent behavior in ways that we may live out, often destructively, in unconscious relationships with ourselves and others. This passage speaks to how much we, and by we, I mean social workers and others who work in mental health, tend to like and gravitate towards things that make sense. How much we enjoy being able to explain stuff. And I believe that for this reason, uh, we, again, social workers and other mental health people, are by and large drawn to theories and systems that help us in our attempt to make sense out of the things that we encounter. Even the term make sense, I think is kind of revealing. When we make sense, what we end up doing is we make something, we produce something. What is it that we produce? We produce sense. We create things that are understandable. Sense is synonymous with being able to explain and understand whatever it is that we are encountering and experiencing. Another way to say what I'm trying to say here is that people, I think, generally get a pretty big kick out of solving mysteries 
and out of having these things that we call aha moments, where all of a sudden we're able to put things together in some kind of a new way that makes things that did not make sense start to make sense. I would claim that it feels good for us, for all of us, when something goes from being a thing that is outside of the stuff that we understand and moves into the group of things that we understand. Now, this little bit of text that I just read from inside out and outside in makes it clear how today, right now, so much of what social workers and other mental health professionals do is aimed at using things like the scientific method, uh, empirical research, statistics, psychological experiments, those sorts of things, to help them produce this thing that we call data. Data that we then use to produce things like plans, treatment plans, those sorts of things, measurable outcomes, uh, things that we can use to make what we commonly call data-driven decisions. And, you know, I, I one thing I want to make super clear here is that's actually not bad, right? Making data-driven decisions is awesome. Like, I'm, I'm all for it. I think that when we have data that would, you know, demonstrate that it's a good idea to do something that, you know, if the data is good data that we listen to it and that we, we do whatever it is that it suggests, that, that that's actually a really great idea. However, I also want to add to that and say there are times where uh, data can't explain things. There are times where we can, you know, do lots of psychological experiments. We can do lots of outcome study, studies. We can do loads and loads of assessments and we can gather all this data and occasionally what's going to happen is we're going to encounter a phenomenon uh somebody who we are seeing as a patient or a client they will do things that don't fit into what the data suggests uh, they will do things think things feel things that do not follow the rules and don't follow the trends that, that data suggests. There's going to be times where we encounter people who do things, who believe things, who think things that just don't make sense. They don't. And we can spend a lot of time trying to, you know, engage with those people and whatever it is that they're doing or thinking or feeling. And we can, you know, say all sorts of things. I'm like, Hey, what you're thinking doesn't make sense. What you're feeling is illogical so on and so forth. And it, it won't matter because there are these things that sometimes people do that just don't make sense, uh, which brings me to psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis tends to focus on the things that we can't explain because they don't make sense. Uh, that's an important thing. I'm going to say that again because I think it's really important. Psychoanalysis tends to focus on the things that we can't explain because they don't make sense. This is one of the things that I'm going to suggest make psychoanalysis so different from other kinds of theories that exist out there in the world of theory. A lot of other theories that you have probably learned about before today tend to focus on, aim at, fixate on the things that people do that do make sense. The, there's a lot of theories and a lot of systems and a lot of um, interventions that can be deployed that all try to take something that does make sense and grow it and make it bigger. 
It, but it, they start from that place. They start from the place where things make sense. They start from uh, data and they try to use data uh, and, and other things to encourage people to do things that, that make sense. Psychoanalysis does not do that. It doesn't. It's much more interested not in what people are doing that does make sense. It's not as interested in the things that they're doing, which would suggest that, that the person is healthy and well-adjusted and whatnot. It's more interested in the things that people do that don't make sense, which is not to say that it's totally uninterested in the good things that people do or the healthy things that people do. It's just less interested in those things than it is in the things that people do that actually don't make sense. Psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theory generally is really interested in outliers that refute what the data suggests should happen. The things that people do that don't make sense. The things that people feel that don't make sense. The things that people believe that don't make sense. That's the kind of stuff that psychoanalysis is really interested in. Another way you could say this is that psychoanalysis is really interested in the things that people are experiencing that make their lives hard repeatedly. The things that don't work again and again and again. It's more interested in those things than it is in the things that, you know, work the way that they're supposed to and make our lives function in a relatively predictable way. It's more interested in the things that pop up and make uh, our lives less predictable and a little bit more crazy. And I think that the reason that it's interested in that is because no one ever comes to a psychotherapist or a psychoanalyst and like, you know, comes and knocks on your door and they come in and they, they you say, oh, hey, what, what brought you in? And they go, oh, my life is just so good. Everything is so awesome right now. I have no problems. My relationships are all where I want them to be. I'm making enough money. I'm, fi- I'm healthy uh, physically, mentally, mo- emotionally, all that. Uh, I just wanted to come in here and tell you how good my life is. That kind of thing doesn't happen. What does happen is people come and they knock on your door and they come in and you say, what, what brought you here? And they say, I, I have a problem. And then they start to tell you about that problem, right? People don't, uh, psychoanalysis would suggest that uh, being overly fixated, overly focused on people's strengths and the things that are going well in their life can really not be that helpful, you know, to people because that's, that's not why they present themselves to a, to a therapist. And uh, yeah, it's just more interested in the, the things that don't work because that's why people tend to come and see therapists in the first place. Be that as it may, uh, that psychoanalysis is interested in those things, the things that don't make sense, the things that are unhealthy and illogical and perhaps even crazy. Uh, that means that psychoanalysis tends to be interested in the more problematic elements of human behavior and the human emotional experience, the things that a lot that quite frankly freak us out when we need to look at them. So part of what I want to do on this podcast lecture is kind of make an argument make a claim, kind of try to convince you of something. What I want to try to convince you of is that if you want to be a really good social worker, if you want to be a really competent mental health practitioner, one of the things that might be helpful to you would be to get a little bit less freaked out about buy things that don't make sense. And that's, uh, that's easy to say. It's actually rather hard to do, I think, but I think it's a really important thing to be able to do. If when we encounter things that don't make sense, like I'll give you an example, somebody wants to kill themselves. A lot of times that doesn't make sense. You, you, you hear somebody say that and you think to them, to yourself, like, okay, this person might be having some problems, but they want to kill themselves. That doesn't make sense. 
and you might get freaked out by that just as an example and when we get freaked out sometimes what i think we do is we try to um run away from whatever it is that's freaking us out and run towards things that we can understand really easily and the the thing that i want to try to convince you of here is not to do that instead of running away from the things that don't make sense whatever those happen to be what i want you to do is to increase your capacity to kind of um, sit in the presence of those things that freak you out. And here's one thing that I think might help you do that. One of the things that human beings enjoy along with making things make sense, this is what I said earlier, is that we enjoy solving mysteries. But you can't solve a mystery if there is no mystery. You don't get to solve a mystery before there is a mystery. A mystery is a necessary thing for you to have the experience of solving the mystery. And so what I think can be helpful when we encounter things that don't make sense, instead of getting irritated, instead of getting angry, and instead of running away from them, what might happen if instead of that, we thought of these things as a really interesting mystery that we now have an opportunity to solve? What if we saw these things as enigmas and we, we, their enigmatic nature, rather than being threatening, kind of provoked our curiosity and our desire to want to engage those things and kind of come to understand them a little bit more. And that's, that's what I think is a super important skill um, that people who want to be mental health workers should develop and then continue to develop throughout the course of their career. It's not like something that you develop once when you're in grad school or whatever. And then it's developed and you can kind of like leave it, forget it because you've checked that box. It's done. No, you have to, I, I would suggest anyways, that it's, it's much more beneficial for you to try to, con, to engage your curiosity, to try to fuel your curiosity, to try to kind of like turn up your curiosity when you encounter things that freak you out, things that don't make sense. And then to consistently work to be able to do that again and again and again, all the time. Uh, let me make a little bit of a metaphor here. If you want to have good cardiovascular health, all right, what do you do? You probably do cardio. You run, you swim, you ride a bike, that sort of stuff. So let's say you, you get to the point where you have really good cardiovascular health. You know, your VO2 max is good. Your heart rate is, your resting heart rate is low, all that stuff. If you hit that benchmark and then you're like, okay, I have achieved cardiovascular health and then you stop, you know, trying to uh, do cardiovascular things, what's going to happen is you're going to start to lose the cardiovascular health that you've built up. And, and, you know, that's one of those things that takes a long time to build it up and it takes very little time to lose it. I think the same thing applies to our ability to encounter things that freak us out, things that don't make sense, things that are mysteries and enigmas. Uh, when we encounter them, to be able to be comfortable with them, we have to consistently work to keep our curiosity strong, um, strong enough that it can sort of resist the natural and normal desire to run away from things that freak us out and that are mysterious. So that's, uh, that's a claim I'm making. And now that I've done that, what I'm going to want to do is I'm going to want to explain to you, talk to you about one thing that is a, a psychoanalytic concept uh, and it is one of the most difficult psychoanalytic concepts to think about. And I think it's so difficult to think about and talk about 
because it's one of the things that really doesn't make sense at all when we encounter it. And this concept is the concept of the drive. Some people have described psychoanalysis as a way of examining or studying a particular relationship, a relationship between a subject, and a subject is a person who has an unconscious, and their object. Now, when I first heard that statement, that psychoanalysis was a way of examining or studying the relationship between a subject and their object, I thought to myself, their object, that seems kind of like a vague term. I wonder what that could mean. And now, several years later, uh, I've talked to a lot of people about this. I've done a lot of reading about this. I've done a lot of um, thinking about it. And I think, I hope, that I have a pretty good handle on what this might mean. And I'm going to try to explain that to you. In psychoanalytic theory, the term object is extremely flexible. It can mean pretty much anything. It could be an actual object, a car, a computer, a piece of jewelry, those sorts of things. But that's not usually the way that psychoanalysts are using the word when they talk about a person's object. Usually, when they talk about that, when they talk about the relationship between a subject and their object, the object is a much more complicated thing, um, such as time or money or power, control, safety, stability, that sort of thing. Um, It can also be I guess an experience too, Uh, sex, adventure, winning, these could all be examples of an object that a person might seek. Now, there are some objects that we can get, right? Um, Jewelry that I just mentioned, that's something you can get. A computer, you can buy that. Uh, You want to get a car, you might need to save, but it's something that you can get. Uh, Earlier today, I wanted a donut and I drove to this donut place called Spunky Dunkers and I got three donuts because... That's the way that I roll. Um, so yeah, there's there's some objects we can get, but the objects that psychoanalysis tends to be concerned with, the, the objects that it is referring to when it tries to examine the relationship between the subject and the object, those are objects that we can never actually get enough of. And these are oftentimes called drive objects. When it comes to drive objects, we are sort of like zombies we just keep on going after that object no matter how much of that object we might get we just want more uh so i say it's kind of like a zombie if you've ever seen a show like the walking dead or if you've ever seen a zombie movie uh, imagine a bunch of zombies right they're they're kind of like stumbling around being zombies and then they see a person who's not a zombie and what do they do you know they they go after that person they 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 chase them and even if they catch that person and like devour them, are the zombies like, okay, we're good now? No, they go back to just like looking for the next thing that they can devour. They're never actually done, right? They always want more things they can devour. When it comes to drive objects, human beings are pretty similar to those those zombies. So just to, to make that a little bit more concrete, let's say that somebody has a drive object of um, money, right? They They really want money. They love having money. I've known a lot of people who have actually had money as their drive object. And, you know, I think that if my, 
experience as representative. This is what I've seen when somebody has money as a drive object. Uh, these people might go out and they'll get a job. They'll make money. Sometimes they'll make lots of money because they'll take a job that is designed to give them lots of money. And they'll do things like buy a house and a nice car and other expensive things. Then they'll invest their money and their investments will turn their money into more money and uh, so on and so forth. They'll do cryptocurrency. I don't know. They'll do all sorts of different things with their money. And they just keep on getting more and more money. Yet, no matter how much money they get, they're never like, you know what? I feel like I have enough money. I'm good. Maybe I should start looking into getting something else that isn't money. Uh, a lot of times, even though they have a lot of money, they won't spend their money. They'll just like hoard it. They'll keep it somewhere. They won't do a lot with their money. They just want more money, right? Uh, that's an example of a drive object. And the person chasing money is kind of like a, a zombie chasing, you know, whatever it is that zombies chase, right? You kind of see the comparison there. Uh, now, this also illustrates something. This example about money kind of also illustrates another aspect of drive objects. And that is that generally speaking, drive objects are things that we don't need right? Uh, the person in my example who has money, they don't, they actually have more money than they need. They have enough money to do all the things that they need to do, like pay their mortgage, their rent and, uh, their phone bill and blah, blah, blah. They, and they have a lot more besides they have loads of money. They have more money than they need. And yet they want even more. Right? Uh, so that's an example of that say somebody has sex as their drive object. They might, you know, be having sex. They don't need to have more sex, but they're going to try to have more sex. They don't need it, but they want it. Uh, they enjoy it. And so they'll go after more of it. Additionally, to being a drive object, being something that you don't need, it's, it's something that you enjoy. It's also something that kind of going after it and getting it could be described as a transgression. And by transgression, I mean that going after your drive object, whatever that is, is something that some people would call bad or inappropriate. Uh, so for example, some people might have power as their drive object. They get more power than they need and they really enjoy getting more and more power. And probably some people who know them would say that their pursuit of power is something that kind of makes them not that much fun or that makes their relationships problematic or something like that. They might say that their pursuit of power is even inappropriate. Those are some of the conditions of drive objects too. So quick review here. Drive objects are things that we always want more of, no matter how much we get. They're things that we don't need, but we really like having them. And generally speaking, they complicate our lives because they are things that we don't need. And because we always want more of them, they, they create complications in our life. I'm going to try to give you just one more example here to kind of drive this home. Another thing that I've seen function as a drive object for a number of people, many of them social workers, is validation. I have seen loads and loads and loads of social workers and, and other folks for that matter who just really want to be validated, right? They want to be told that they're on the right track. They want to be told that they're doing a good thing. They, they always want that. And even if they get it, right? They're, they might do something like uh, organize an event that raises a lot of money for charity or something like that. And there might be people who will, be, who will say things like, oh, it's so impressive that you did this. This is such a great idea. Um, this is so so wonderful. Thank, thank you so much for doing this. They'll get all this stuff and they'll just want more. 
And so what they might do is they'll then like after that event comes to an end, what will they do? They'll start planning their next event and they'll want it to be bigger than the one that they just did. They'll want to raise more money for charity than the one that they just just raised. So uh, I give this as an example because I want to illustrate that, you know, drive objects don't always take the form of like avariciousness and, and greed going after things like sex and money. Sometimes they can be going after things like validation, like I, I just described here too. What makes both of these things the same is that the validation, the money, the sex, all of them, not things that are needed, but are things that a person really enjoys getting. Uh, and again, they're things that are kind of like zombieish pursuit of these things are never being able to get enough of them complicates our lives in different ways. So let's return to the original statement that I used to start off this segment of the podcast lecture. Psychoanalysis can be seen as the examination, the very careful study of the relationship between a subject, a person with an unconscious, and their object, their drive object, the thing that they can't get enough of. When I say that, and I've now kind of described what drive objects are, I want to make something kind of clear here. If you are using a psychoanalytic theory, as you are meeting with somebody as a patient or a client, and you're trying to understand them, you probably will not know what their drive object is very quickly. It'll take a while for you to figure out what that might be. Somebody might even come in uh, to the first session and they may say something like, I have a video game addiction. That does not mean that video games are a drive object for them. It could mean that. It might mean that playing a video game is a drive object for them, but it might not. Uh, perhaps playing video games is one of the ways that this person gets validation and validation is the drive object. Perhaps uh, winning is something that this person wants. And as you talk to them, they describe it's not only video games, but anytime they, they, they went to a barbecue because it was summer and they were playing that toss the beanbags game and they got really into it because they just love winning so much, right? You, you'll discover that it's something else. So what I want to make really clear here is that well, I think it's, a, it's fair and good and accurate to say that psychoanalysis is the examination and careful study of the relationship between a subject and their drive object. I also want to say that understanding what that relationship is, is not something which is going to emerge quickly. It's usually going to take, you know, a while. Um, how long do I mean by a while? I would say in my experience, when I meet with people, it usually takes me at the very earliest, a month before I start to have a, I, I can't say this, a basic hypothesis. Ah, I got it. A basic hypothesis of what their drive object might be. And usually I revise that hypothesis for, you know, another two months. So maybe three months in to an encounter, I might have a decent idea of what their drive object is. Uh, but it's not always that. Sometimes people take even way longer than three months. And I just want to make that super clear. It takes a while to figure it out. Be that as it may, trying to, from the beginning, from when you first meet with a person, kind of have that as one of the things that you're trying to figure out can be helpful uh, because it, it gives you a direction to go and it gives you a target that you can try to hit. So that's something I want to say. The next thing that I want to say is kind of trying to tie this segment of the podcast lecture to the previous segment of the podcast lecture. When you're trying to, discern, to determine what a person's drive object might be, you're looking for something that kind of doesn't make sense. It's, you'll find all sorts of things in a person's life usually that do make sense. So you might see that a person who really likes money, they 
go to work every day. That makes sense. They work hard. That makes sense. They're proud of the work they do. That makes sense. Um, and then you'll, you'll eventually run into something though that doesn't make sense. And that will be maybe reveal itself in the way that the person talks about how much money they have. And you think to yourself like, oh, this person has a lot of money. And uh, then they talk about like wanting to do something like take a vacation. And you're baffled because you're thinking to yourself like, this person has loads and loads of money. Why are they not taking a vacation? Maybe you even ask that, you know, why, why are you not taking this vacation? And they say something like, oh, well, you know, it's kind of expensive. This would be one of those things that doesn't make sense. It should make you kind of pause and go, ooh, that's interesting. That doesn't make sense. Here's a person with loads and loads and loads of extra money, money that they don't need, that is in surplus of what they need. There's this other thing that they want to take a vacation and they're not doing it. That's weird. That doesn't make sense. That would be one of those things. Uh, another example that you might see, say somebody wants to be in a healthy romantic relationship with somebody else. And as they're talking to you, maybe they're coming to you for sessions, say they meet somebody and this relationship develops. And as it develops, it seems to you like they've found somebody who is, you know, a good match for them, somebody who has the is emotionally mature, um, who really is interested in the person who is your patient, so on and so forth. And you'll see them kind of like wreck that relationship because they keep on increase, gradually increasing the demands that they're making of this person who seems like they are, could be a really great romantic partner. And you could think to yourself like, this makes no sense. This relationship was going so well. I, it, all of the signs seemed so good. And yet this person snatched uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. Why'd they do that? Uh, this could be an example of, or it could be an indication that you might have stumbled on something that is a person's drive object. And I really hope that that makes sense. So to wrap up this podcast lecture, what I want to do now is say that in addition to examining, studying the relationship between a subject, a person with an unconscious, and again, the unconscious is a party that has a mind, desires all of its own. So in addition to studying the relationship between a subject and their drive object, psychoanalysis also will try, will make an attempt to help somebody alter their relationship to whatever their drive object might be. Now, I want to point something out here, which I think is super important. So please pay attention here. I did not say that psychoanalysis tried to get rid of the relationship that a subject has to their drive object. Didn't say that. What I did say is that psychoanalysis attempts to alter the relationship that a subject might have to their drive object. These are not the same thing. Getting rid of something means that you don't have it anymore. It's gone. Altering something means that you still have it, but you have it in a different way. So psychoanalytic theory suggests, and sometimes people don't like this, but what it suggests is that all of us 
are always going to have drive objects in our life. We don't get to opt out of having drive objects. We can't. They're going to be a part of our life. They're going to complicate our lives. They're going to create problems in our lives. And no matter what, we're always going to have them. We don't get to have lives that don't have problems. <laughs> we just don't get that. Um, but if somebody works at it, usually for quite a while, one of the things that they can do is they can take that relationship that they have to their drive object and they can turn it from something which might be a really big problem in their lives into something that is a smaller problem or less of a problem in their lives. Another thing, and this is when psychoanalysis is super successful, what it can help people do is kind of um, harness some of the energy, some of the inertia uh, of their striving for their drive object and kind of find new interesting ways of using that. It, it's this idea that if we're always going to have a drive object, how can we make that not a torturous thing? How can we make it into a thing which is interesting, something we can be curious about? Maybe even something that we might be able to use to increase our self-awareness and, and other things like that. That's all altering the relationship that a subject has to their drive object. So that's the last claim that I want to make. So here's the, the last thing I'll say. Then we're going to wrap up this podcast lecture for today. Uh, what I'd like everybody who's hearing this to do is I would like you to think of somebody, some, a, a person. It could be you. You could use yourself if you're comfortable doing that. You don't have to, but you could. And what I want you to do is I want you to come up with a hypothesis about what this person's drive object is. So if you're thinking about yourself, think about what your drive object might be. If you're thinking about your sibling, think about what their drive object might be. If you're thinking about your friend or your romantic partner, your parent, um, somebody you work with, think about what their drive object might be. It, it, and write this down. It shouldn't be a lot. I'm not asking you to write a paper. I'm just basically asking you to write down what the drive object is and why you think that is the drive object, right? Real quick, just should be like not that long at all. And then what I want you to do is come to class and be prepared to talk about this person and their drive object. Be able to kind of sort of describe, here's the subject, here's the drive object, here's the relationship between the two. If you can do that, that'll make class a lot more interesting uh, when we meet. So please think about it and try to get that done. Uh, if you don't write it down, that's okay. As long as it's in your head, just come with something prepared. And uh, that is it for this podcast lecture. Thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Thank you for having me in your ears. And until I see you next, make some glorious mistakes. Take care.